so in 2005, she reports for the first time that there was still preserved soft tissue within the femur bone of a Tyrannosaurus rex, so the upper leg bone of a T-Rex. And she showed a video in which she was taking tweezers and pulling this tissue and it would snap back into place. It looked like a blood vessel. All I could see was this light coming in. The Holy Spirit went. It blew into me. I have never been the same since then. That was it. I'm done. I was born again. Welcome to the Weird Christian Podcast. I am your host, Samuel Delgado, and this is episode 95. I interview Marcus Ross about dinosaurs. So we get into creationism versus evolution. We talk about whether or not these dinosaurs were carnivorous prior to the fall. We get into Behemoth and Leviathan and who they were, dragons, the serpent of Genesis 3, and we even get into a little bit of Jurassic Park towards the end. So uh, it is a fantastic episode. Uh, hope you enjoy. With no further ado, let's get weird. Welcome, man. Thank you so much for doing this. I have... Um, been like maybe i don't know a couple of years two and a half years since i started this podcast and this was okay. a topic that at the very onset of me doing this i wanted so badly to do a an episode on dinosaurs but i, I just haven't been able to do it until just now um i had one that came close and it fell through um so uh yeah when you jumped on the opportunity i was thrilled man so so welcome glad to have you thanks um so uh anyway yeah i'm just thrilled excited to, to be talking about this today um so uh i i think it's safe to say we have an expert with us uh, why don't you give us a little bit of background um on, on who you are and how uh you know where your um interest in dinosaurs got started well um by training i am a paleontologist and by profession i've been an educator and a business owner um, my fascination with dinosaurs began really early, um, when I was four years old. So, uh, I remember, uh, hanging out at my cousin's house, uh, way back in Rhode Island where I grew up and we were listening to a record and for, you know, the younger folks though, finding vinyl trendy, they're like, Ooh, wow, really? Uh, yeah. So I was listening to an old school, uh, little 45, those are smaller records. And it was a read along book type of thing, you know, where you turn mm -hmm. the page when you hear the, the noise. My cousin didn't have the book. He didn't know where it was, but we we're just listening to this book about dinosaurs and there's roaring and crashing and screeching and music and dun, 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 dun. And I just lost my little four-year-old mind uh, to that and wanted to learn everything that I could about dinosaurs and started going to the library to get books, asked my parents, get me the little plastic bag, oh, prehistoric animals. And and off we went. And uh, by the time I was seven, I had finally learned the word paleontologist, that there were pe people out there whose jobs were, you know, finding and discovering fossils and writing about them and stuff like that. And I thought, well, that's what I want to do when I grow up. That's and awesome. um, yeah, it, it really did start like way back then and continued on. I was that I was that nerd in high school. I was the kid. You looked at my high school yearbook and you will, you would see if you found it, which I won't let you see it, but if you found it, you know, my goal was to be a paleontologist. That was my senior ambition. So, um, yeah, it, it was, um, a, a wonderful opportunity. Uh, I went to Penn state university for my undergraduate, uh, to get a, a good training in geology. They have an excellent program there. From there, I went out to South Dakota to work on a master's degree in paleontology at the South Dakota school of mines and tech. 
And then I ended up boomeranging back to my home state of Rhode Island and did a PhD under David Festovsky, a well-known dinosaur paleontologist. He's uh, got uh, the longest running textbook uh, on dinosaurs with David Weishampel. And um, and he was my PhD advisor, uh, where I worked on um, not dinosaurs, but mosasaurs, a big group of extinct marine mm. reptiles that swam in the ocean. Mm. And I was looking at their diversity, their extinction, their patterns uh, in the fossil record. And uh, then after that, I got to start teaching uh, at Liberty University. We're actually kind of in the, in the midst of that. Um, started teaching at Liberty University and taught there for 16 years from 2005 to 2021. And I was a professor of geology. I taught classes in earth science, geo, paleontology, environmental science. And I was also the director of the Center for Creation Studies there, taught uh, both their um, introductory and their advanced course in creation. Um, and then in 2021, I hung up my academic robes and uh, stepped out full-time to work for Cornerstone Educational Supply, which is where I'm broadcasting from here. Uh, my wife and I started this company a few years earlier and uh, it started growing. We provide science materials for labs and activities for homeschoolers or colleges and schools. Uh, my wife likes to say we're the stuff people. So when your mm -hmm. curriculum says, go get some stuff to do some experiments, that's us. We've got your beakers. We've got your dissection frogs. We started with rock and mineral and fossil kits because, you know, you do what you know. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, so the last uh, couple of years now, two and a half years, I've been full-time uh, working for Cornerstone, and it's been an interesting transition and and a pretty welcome one. Really enjoyed it. Yeah. Wow. I love your story, man. That is so cool. Um, and I think many people can really relate because, you know, what young boy doesn't have somewhat of a fascination with dinosaurs? Um, in fact, I think I might have shared this on this uh, podcast before. It's something that's like seared into my brain. Uh, I'll, I'll never forget it because I grew up in a Christian home. And um, so I was familiar with the creation story. And anytime you pick up a book about dinosaurs, it's 65 million years ago. Mm -hmm. And so naturally, that, um, that was like... Uh, odd to me to, to hear that that that's um that people believed in a time where there was only dinosaurs and it was that far long ago um it just didn't match up with what you know i read in my bible so i remember one time at um uh, i was at a christian summer camp and we we're doing a little bible study and i don't know if we we're reading genesis or if it was just completely off topic but at one point the camp counselor said all right you have any questions and so i said here we go He's, he's got the answer. So, so I said, what about dinosaurs? Um, and I remember he just laughed and then, and they just moved on. Like he didn't even take my question serious, seriously, but I remember, uh, how serious I was. I mean, it was like this, this, you know, deep question that I really wanted to answer. Um, uh, so anyway, I was, I'm very appreciative. I say all that to say how appreciative I am to uh, have um, someone who has a lot of knowledge in this field about dinosaurs uh, and yet can withhold um, what the Bible says. So, uh, so thank you. I appreciate uh, that. Yeah, I say that I, I, I came across you um, on a I guess it was a, a documentary called Genesis uh, as History, something like that. 
Mm-hmm. Is Genesis history? Yeah, is Genesis history? Anyways, a question. Uh, and so, anyone who has like the Amazon uh, Prime Video, you can watch it on there. I think with commercials, um, but you can watch it for free with commercials. And uh, you were one of um, several kind of experts um, that they had interviewed. Everyone had a, a PhD. I've had actually a, a couple mm-hmm. uh, others uh, on this podcast um, from that documentary. Um, so, how did you uh, get involved with that uh, project? Um, well, that yeah, it's kind of interesting. Uh, so Thomas Purifoy is the director of the film is Genesis History, and uh, he runs a homeschool video curriculum company. So they make, you know, academic films and, and videos, mostly instructional types of videos, classes and things like that for homeschoolers. And um, he was watching the Ken Ham Bill Nye debate that happened back in 2014. Yes. yes. With his daughter. And, you know, they watched like the whole thing and all the q and I mean, it was, it was massive. It was like three hours long, yeah. big, long thing. And, you know, they ended up having a lot of questions, especially his daughter had a lot of questions later on. And he kind of realized like, well, I don't, I don't know all the answers to the things that you're asking. So I think, you know, he started off probably by reaching out to people like Dr. Andrew Snelling and others, um, uh, starting at Answers in Genesis, and from there started moving out into other people that you know sometimes aren't known as well because we've been on kind of the academic side and we don't work for say the big ministries or, or things like that. So the the cast that he compiled uh, for that film was I thought very impressive. You had people from a number mm-hmm. of different uh, ministries, Christian colleges, schools, academic researchers of, of different areas. Um, all of, all of which are people who have contributed to creationist um, scholarship in, in a variety of different ways. So I got a call from him one time and, you know, he was kind of introducing himself and I think it had been through answer uh, through Andrew Je- Snelling that um, we'd been connected. And one thing that I remember that really impressed me very much about Thomas Purifoy was he said, okay, so what do I need to, to read up on to, to understand paleontology mm-hmm. rather well? And I said, well, you know, I teach a class in vertebrate paleontology, so the animals with backbones, um, at Liberty University. And this is the textbook that we use, uh, Michael Benton's Vertebrate Paleontology. It's a standard textbook. And um, a couple months later, I'm on the phone with him again. He's like, okay, so I read that. Um, now now what? And I'm like, wait, you, you read the whole textbook? Like, mm-hmm. My students don't read the whole textbook. I don't think they even read the parts that I assign to them, yeah. right? <laughs> and uh, but. Purifoy was just voracious in in his capacity to read and synthesize and comprehend. And it was just very impressive. And he told me on the phone, he's like, if you could go anywhere in the world uh, that's not dangerous, uh, where to talk about paleontology, where would you go? And so, I mean, to have somebody say something like that for a film was just really impressive Hmm. because, you know, this guy, he understands cinematography. And one of the things that I think most people were very impressed with about the film was just the stunning visuals of it all. Yeah, it brought yeah. people out. It's not just a bunch of stuffy people sitting in chairs talking mm-hmm. about stuff. Steve Austin gets 15, 18 minutes. They're in the Grand Canyon. They're looking at rocks. There's beautiful vistas. Danny Faulkner is you know, out there with the telescope at night looking at stuff. I'm in a museum. Uh, Art Chadwick is at the dinosaur d- dig site that he's been running for the past 20 some years in Wyoming. Um, and so- Purifoy really wanted to get people who know what they're doing, who have contributed, who are on the ground doing research and show them in a sense, almost in their natural habitats, uh, which was really, really neat. 
Yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah, so anyone who hasn't uh, seen that, uh, that all that passion that you described, it comes across. It's very well done. Um, you know, we need more uh, projects and work like that. So that's, a, well, that's I'll, neat to hear. The work I'll, I'll drop a on. plug uh, yeah. for their second movie that just came out mm -hmm. uh, a couple of months ago this summer. Uh, Beyond uh, Is Genesis History 2? Uh, the, the title for that one is called Mountains After the Flood. Mm, yeah, it's very different from the first movie where you've got like a whole bunch of different folks. There's like nine of us, you know, that are featured in the film over an hour and a half or so. Uh, whereas this one follows primarily two to three people. You've got Dr. Andrew Snelling at, at Answers in Genesis, Dr. John Whitmore, who teaches at Cedarville University, and a colleague of theirs, Ray Strom from Canada, who runs a, a geological processing and analysis lab. And they're looking at uh, a particular research question, and that is looking at some of the folded rock beds that are near Grand Canyon. You've got these really big, yeah. tight folds. And what does creationist research look like? So if is Genesis history gave you an idea of what young earth creationism actually can be and can look like on a macro scale, this zooms down into a micro scale to look at what does a research project entail from beginning to end with some creation researchers. And so uh, a really neat one, it, it's not like a, it's not going to do well in like a theater setting. So they just, you know, set it straight out to the internet, but um, a, a really, a really nice look at what a technical approach to creation science can be. Yeah. That's really cool. Thank you for that. Um, all right. Well, uh, let's, let, let's get into this. So I, I kind of already brought forth my curiosity as a child and I'm sure uh, many have had that same experience. So my, my first question is, uh, do you believe that the, the dinosaurs uh, walked uh, amongst Adam and Eve? So, yeah, that's, that's a very good question. So uh, one to set out right at the beginning, uh, were dinosaurs created at the same time as people and other creatures? I think the answer to that is yes. Um, I hold that the days of Genesis 1 are in fact regular days, days like we experience them. Uh, they're certainly written about that in terms of the language of the Hebrew. Uh, there's a lot of different perspectives of what those days are, but Hebraists, um, and I'm, I'm blessed to have a Hebraist for a sister, and so she's helped bring me into this world of discussion that happens on the theological side. Mm. Um, Old Testament scholars and Hebraists are almost universally in agreement that the days of Genesis 1 mean days as you and I experience them. That doesn't mean that they're all young earth creationists. Many of them, like John Walton or uh, Jack Collins, think that the structure of Genesis 1 is actually trying to do something different than tell us about sequential day history. They might say, if you're Jack Collins, he says it's an analogy. God's work week is like our work week. John Walton says that uh, Genesis 1 is actually a temple text. It's about God establishing order in the world and establishing the world as his temple, but it's not talking about material creation. It's kind of a cosmic ordering type of thing. But both of them agree with me that at least within the text itself, day means day, even if they think the text doesn't mean historical days. I think the text is telling us that we're talking about historical days and historical creation. And so if we've got regular days and we have historical events, then I think that dinosaurs are part of the group of creatures that are created on days five and six. Uh, things that fly in the air are created on day five. Things that roam on the earth are created on day six. So most of the dinosaurs are day six cre creatures. 
um, along with lots of other prehistoric things. It's not just dinosaurs, lots and lots of other things. We've got other prehistoric fish. We've got pterosaurs that are flying in the air. We have dinosaurs that might you know, have feathers and might be flying as well. So you might see different groups of dinosaurs maybe even created on different days. Um, but that would mean that if people were also made on day six and dinosaurs were made on day six, then we lived at the same time. Now, whether we lived in exactly the same places is a different question and one that we you know, don't really know the answer to one way or the other. Uh, in fact, based on the stuff that we have from the flood, I would say it seems very unlikely that we were living in the same places as dinosaurs were, uh, but it's at least possible. But I don't know whether Adam and Eve are walking around and observing dinosaurs uh, beside them or if the menagerie around them was particular to right. their to their needs. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, when we look at Genesis 2, uh, the Lord brings the animals to Adam for him to name after he's brought into the garden. So it does seem mm -hmm. uh, that that environment um, at least is unique um, from that, from, you know, the surrounding Eden and the land outside of it. Interesting. Um, so I have a couple of questions. This is actually one that I, I didn't plan um, on asking because uh, it just kind of came to me just now. And, and that is that there is, you know, the paradigm that you just described. Uh, and as you stated, there are others that, that do not hold to the 24-hour the um, day creation as you just described. And so there are, you know, those that are just non-believers that would believe in an old earth, but yet there are believers that um, still um, believe that the Bible is true uh, and interpret it differently as, as old earth. And so those camps, um, their paradigm would be the evolutionary paradigms. And that's, I, I think, um, the, um, the other side of that, uh, to my knowledge. So when we look at the the 65 million years, this is the time when dinosaurs roamed the earth. Is there, excuse me for my ignorance on this, um, is there a reason why there's a, a time period of dinosaurs in particular um, that sets them apart from the rest of um, the animal, you know, kingdom or world? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So to understand the answer to that question, we have to think a little bit about how rocks are arranged and the types of fossils that we find in them. So fossils are found in sedimentary rocks. If you remember back to middle school, right? Sedimentary rocks are the rocks that form when things kind of settle down out of, say, water or air. So you end up with these layers of sand and mud and silt and clay and things like that. You're not going to find uh, dinosaur fossils, for example, in uh, a granite because a granite is a magma that forms usually something like six plus miles down below the surface. So super hot, cooling, crystalline material or volcanic eruptions, generally bad for organic life forms. Right? You, you die yeah. pretty bad and you get incinerated. So fossils get formed in these sedimentary rocks where mud and other sorts of materials pile up as layers with the dead stuff inside. And um, going back to the real dawn of geology as a discipline where these sorts of rules started out, you see people like uh, Nico Steno, uh, a, a Danish scientist who eventually gets down to Italy, works at the first 
scientific think tank established by Galileo's students uh, down, mm -hmm. down there. And he starts getting interested in fossils and trying to say that fossils are biological things and not just weird little minerals or stuff like that found in the rock. And so he lays out some of these initial rules about sediment starting out as flat layers and that higher layers are younger than lower layers are because things get stacked one on top of the other. Sure. And yeah, once you hear that, you go, okay, that makes sense. But for the first time in the, in the 1600s, Steno could then look at a set of rocks and read them like a book. Whereas prior to that, almost everybody just thought, well, maybe God made it all that way. And Steno sees history unfolding in that. And when he does, um, he writes about this in a 70-page long paper that he promises is just the beginning to a much larger dissertation that he's going to write on it. Never gets around to it. Hmm. Um, but 70 pages for an intro, it's like, wow, that's, <laughs> that's some intro. Um, hmm. And he lays out not only these rules and these principles, but also he interprets the local geology around Tuscany, Italy, where he lives, in terms of rocks that were formed during creation week, rocks that were formed during Noah's flood, and rocks that were formed after Noah's flood was done. So the very beginning of geology as a discipline and stratigraphy and sedimentology and paleontology, as, as we kind of think of those, are actually based in a young earth conception of earth history. That's wild. Yeah, it, it really is. And so once we recognize that there's different layers and as we go from bottom to top, the layers are older to younger. We don't need dates in order to do that. That's just a relative stack, right? Sure. Yeah. It would be in the late 17 and early 1800s that people would start recognizing that there are patterns to the types of fossils that were found in the stacks. Uh, William Smith in England was uh, perhaps the best known. He developed what was called the principle of faunal succession, where he recognized that different layers had these different assemblages of fossils in them, and that he could then start tracing the patterns from one place to another and arrange these stacks from far different areas and say like, okay, I had like three stacks here and four stacks here. Well, how do they relate? He's like, well, actually, I can find a common point and take this stack and put it on top of this other one. So we now have a stack that's bigger. And he recognized that certain types of animals were always found above or below other types of animals and plants in the fossil record. Mm -hmm. So when we start talking about the age of dinosaurs, right, the Mesozoic as the age of dinosaurs or the age of reptiles, it's because these types of fossils are the dominant things within a group of rocks below which are generally invertebrate animals and fish and things like that. Then you've got dinosaurs and their associated creatures, including a bunch of fish and things. But then in the rocks above those, you tend to have your mammal fossils leading eventually up to the Ice Age. So with this relative stack, what you've got is you know these, these kind of sandwiches, uh, if you will, stacked up here. And the dinosaurs are, are in between these other two big sets. So we've got three major divisions in the fossil-bearing rocks. We call them the Paleozoic, the Mesozoic, and the Cenozoic. That's you know, basically your age of fish and invertebrates, your age of reptiles, and your age of mammals in conventional books. Hmm. Um, wow. Okay. So, you know, I, I can see how, thank you. That answered my question perfectly. Um, Great. So like, so now the follow-up is, um, you know, outside of that evolutionary paradigm, how do you then explain uh, this within a creationist um paradigm seem it seems to lend towards um evolution so what yeah would be so the answer to that 
Yeah. Well, the first thing to recognize is that, um, as you kind of imply, right, there's there's going to be different interpretations of the data. The data are the same, right? Sure. When I go yeah. out to the rocks, I don't have creationist fossils and my colleagues have evolutionist fossils, right? right. Um, it's not about these are my data and your data. It's like, no, everybody's working with the same thing. And it's about interpreting that column of rocks. So Steno saw a portion of that rock and he went creation week, flood, and post-flood and assigned mm -hmm. those times to different parts of that. And people continued in that tradition for a good while until some of them started thinking that there was too much time represented in the rocks. There Maybe God had created different things in the past, and you see the development of theological explanations that are novel in the 1800s as a result. So some Christians who look at that and see deep time start saying, well, maybe God made a whole bunch of things and then destroyed everything and started over with the six days of creation. And that was the, the development of what became known as gap theory. Right, yeah. Others, uh, especially in continental Europe, thought that each of the days of creation represented some sort of geological epoch. And so right. we had a day-age view. Um, so for the young earth creationists, the challenge then is how do we explain the specific order that we find of the geological record in relation to creation, flood, and post-flood? Uh, for my part, I think that um, at least the Paleozoic and the Mesozoic, so the, the two lower units, uh, or the lower and the middle unit, those are part of the flood. I think that most of the Cenozoic, the age of mammals, if you will, is part of the post-flood recolonization of the world. I think the mammals are the successful types of things. Modern birds, modern plants uh, are the successful things that came out of the flood and did very, very well. And a bunch of the other things didn't do so well. We still have some of them hanging around. We have things like uh, uh, horseshoe crabs that have been in the fossil record almost the entire length of the thing. I mean, it's, they're, mm. they're in a lot. Uh, you've got certain types of brachiopods or corals that are around for large sections of this. Uh, so we do have some things like living fossils, uh, to use that term, uh, that might indicate that we've got continuity between the ancient world or the, what I would consider the pre-flood world and today. But also, I look at the post-flood world as a disaster fauna. It, it's a, a group that is venturing out into a world that's been wiped clean and is restarting again, and that doesn't guarantee that everything from the pre-flood world is going to get a good start and a good grip into that world and and hang on again. So right. the ark, in a sense, is a chance at survival, and it's a guarantee past the flood, but there's no guarantees after that. We certainly know we've driven things extinct um, since you know since that time. Yeah. So I think that that might help to get us thinking about it. So yeah, as I teach about that, I, I talk about some of the different types of features in the rock column that we see between the Paleozoic and Mesozoic rocks uh, that I think indicate things like uh, flood origin. We see large swaths of very similar geological units from one end of a continent to another, like a half continent size or three quarter continent size blanket of sand. Uh, at the very beginning of what I think is the the flood rocks. And I can go to an outcrop 30 minutes from my house and show people this kind of erosion line and then a bunch of sandstone. And I could show people that same thing in New York State, down in Georgia, out in South Dakota, where I was a master's student down at Grand Canyon. And you can see that in, um, in uh, the new movie, Mountains After the Flood where they're talking about what does it take to fold these rocks um, 
that don't look like they have been metamorphosed. They haven't been heated and baked and squished, which you would expect to have happened over many tens or hundreds of millions of years uh, yeah. since their formation. Hmm. So, you know, looking at things like broad sediment cover by thin units over wide areas, we don't see environments like that in the present. This seems to be, you know, a continental yeah. feature that needs a continental wide explanation. Hmm. Um, and there's a bunch of other sorts of things like that. So we're as creationists, we're going to be doing research to look at how might we explain different features. And not all of it is easy. You know, we have plenty of, of challenging aspects, which is why you can ask that question, right? It's not just like a, a gimme. It's like, sure. well, how do you do that? Because the evolutionary community or the old age geological community seems to have a lot of their ducks in a line on explaining geology. And they do. They really, really do. Um, and so I think the onus is on us as creationists to work hard to try to come up with explanations that are on on par with what our old age and evolutionary colleagues can do. So this is a, a follow up. Um, you mentioned, uh, I'm not gonna be able to name them, but three layers, a lower middle, um, you know, creation, flood, post flood. Do we mm -hmm. see dinosaurs in that in that lower level? And is there a reason uh, why or why not? Generally speaking, we don't. So the Paleozoic is the beginning of the flood, I think. Um, and then the Mesozoic is middle and later flood. Um, and one of, the, one of the overall patterns that we see that both sides are trying to explain is that in the Paleozoic, we start off with mostly marine invertebrate types of creatures. We see lots of clams. We see lots of coral types things, starfish type creatures and, and whatnot. It's a big menagerie of lots and lots of marine invertebrates start getting a bunch of fish and sharks and stuff. They look weird and different, but the, the big picture is lots and lots of marine. Everywhere you look in geology, it's marine stuff. Uh, first off, I think that's an interesting potential indicator of the flood, right? That, for example, if you're looking at rocks that we call Ordovician rocks, we have um, Cambrian rocks, then Ordovician. Ordovician is famous the world over for marine rocks. There is probably almost no localities. There may be 3% of the localities of Ordovician rocks in the world uh, that are not considered marine. And you go like, okay, so the water was over absolutely everything. That kind of comports nicely with a Noah's flood interpretation, not so easily with um, uh, an old age view that has continents poking up out of the seas and things like that. Yeah. So we find a lot of marine invertebrates in these first units and then get some vertebrate animals, mostly fish. And eventually towards the top of, of this Paleozoic unit, we start seeing some, some really weird amphibians and reptiles. So I think what's happening is as the floodwaters are advancing and moving uh, from the oceans over to the land, they are burying ecosystems in a sequence, water is churning up these ecosystems and they're flowing back downhill, if you will, as sediment slurries, like these big swaths of concrete mixed with shells and stuff like that. And they get stacked one on top of the other in the low spots. And initially, this is all going to be the marine record. And it's going to take a while before the land starts to be impacted by the flood and the land dwelling ecosystems are eventually destroyed and buried on top of all this marine stuff. So we tend to think about a flood as something that is just plain chaotic, right? The waters rise and everything dies and everything gets mixed up. 
But the reality is that when water starts moving pretty fast and you have a lot of it, it doesn't behave in the chaotic fashion that we usually expect. Uh, things start to become actually very highly ordered under these different energetic regimes. And so we can at least envision ways and test ways in which we could get a sequence of different ecosystems deposited, starting with the marine and eventually getting to the terrestrial later on in the flood. And I think that's the, the overall pattern that we have and the kind of explanation that we're looking for in creation geology. Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, you've already alluded to this a, a bit in, in what you've already said, uh, but I, I still want to ask you in case there's uh, something else, a smoking gun, um, and that is, you know, what is the most compelling evidence that, that dinosaurs fit into a young earth paradigm as opposed to uh, an evolutionary one? That's, that's a good question, a tough one. Um, you know, what would be the best evidence would be is, you know, if we had uh, human fossils in the same rocks as sure. the dinosaurs, right? Um, that would be great. But we don't have any of that, uh, to my knowledge. Um, and I know there's some people who make arguments that, you know, there, there's been this or that found or human footprints. I don't find any of that compelling. Um, the late Carl Sagan used to say that great claims required great e amounts of evidence. And right. we just don't, don't see that with this sort of thing. Um, but I think that what we do have is a lot of different evidences for a rapid and catastrophic burial of, of material that makes a long age perspective very difficult to uh, to reconcile with it. I'll give you one example. Um, in the modern world, we have a bunch of different types of animals that tend to uh, burrow and uh, run through ocean mud looking for food. Things like crabs, uh, or sorry, not crabs, but clams, uh, shrimp, and worms. And they just tunnel around. It's what they do all day long. They're just looking for food. And when they do that, they destroy the nice kind of little sedimentary layers that you have. So, you know, if I've got my finger here with all these nice little sedimentary layers, the, the crabs, uh, clams and whatnot go through there and it just ends up looking like this. Mm. Okay? No good layering. Yeah. Well, when we look at the geological record, we have lots and lots of good evidence of layering all over the place. Uh, in fact, geology would be very, uh, sedimentary geology would be very difficult to um, to do if we couldn't trace these layers laterally from one place to another uh, with great faithfulness. So what we see is in the modern world, when layers are made quickly, say by a hurricane that churns up off the eastern seaboard of the United States, it makes a lot of layers. Biologists will go out with a research survey ship and they'll drop a plot down, they'll study, and they'll take a look at what animals do and how quickly they recolonize after a disaster like that. A group of researchers did this in a laboratory. They took a one meter by one meter grid, made some nice layers in it, and tossed in a handful of, of uh, worms, clams, and shrimp. They took like 10 and dropped them in. They found that it took them something like 60 days. Oh, no, let's see. What was it? I think it was 40 days, and those animals had completely obliterated all of the layers. But wow. 10 animals in a square, in a square meter uh, is actually not very much for the seafloor. When they put in more like you know 50 to 100, which is more typical, they found that those animals could bioturbate, could stir up the sediment so that there was really nothing left for layers in 61 minutes. Oh, geez. Wow. So, no, zero time, right? Yeah. So geologically speaking, that's zero time. 
geologically speaking, 100 days is zero time. Because when we're thinking about old age geology, we're talking about things happening over hundreds of thousands of years, you know, days, days are zero. So if the geological record is actually produced over hundreds of millions of years, why do we have any evidence of layering at all anywhere? Uh, because there's plenty of time for animals to constantly stir this stuff up. Mm. And yet when we look at the, the rock record, we've got layers like this all over the place. It's not, it's not restricted to environments where animals can't live, like someplace with no oxygen or temperatures that are at or near yeah. freezing on the bottom of the ocean floor. Mm. So that's an example of in which we can see that it seems like there's very little time that's going on actually in the rock record. That's interesting. And so for dinosaurs, you know, that has that has some connection because sediments that have dinosaurs in them will inter what we call interfinger. They'll they'll lock in with these other marine layers and stuff like that. So we'll see kind of more terrestrial and more marine connections. And that can give us an idea of what's going on. Also, mm -hmm. what we see with things like dinosaurs and some other land animals is that there is frequently um and talked about this in the movie. Um, there's frequently an interesting pattern between the trackways and the fossils of the animals. So, for example, T-Rex uh, is known to leave footprints. We even call the footprints Tyrannosauropus, means Tyrannosaur foot. Hmm. Um, all the trackways get their own names because you can't usually say for certain that X animal made X tr made Y track. Right, unless you've got the animal at the end of the trackway dead and lying there, sure. you yeah. just gotta you know give your best guess. So um, what we find is that in the fossil record, the first appearance of trilobites, those little underwater cockroach-looking sort of things, we have lots of fossils of those. But there's a 10 million year gap between the first record of their footprints and their body fossils. Now these animals are made with a hard skeleton outside. You know, they're, they're like a bug in the sense that they have an exoskeleton and they can't leave footprints without their exoskeleton. So how do you have a 10 million year gap between a well-skeletonized group that has an abundant fossil record and the first footprints of them? That yeah. doesn't make much sense. Footprints yeah. should be randomly spersed in between the much better um, skeletal fossils that we have of trilobites. And instead... In a very well-studied locality up in in um, uh, Canada, you've got this massive gap. And so where are the trilobites? From an old age perspective, that's a difficult question to answer. From a young age perspective, it's not because animals can be running and escaping from encroaching floodwaters on sediment and picked up and buried in the next layers that come down on top of that. It's not a... 10 million wow, years. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We're talking hours, days, maybe. And we see that pattern not just with trilobites, but with uh turtles, which is really weird because turtles have you know big, heavy, you know, shells. And when you find turtles in the fossil record, you know it. There's little bits of those shells everywhere. It's all over the place. And yet the best turtle uh footprints that we have are several million years, actually a couple tens of million years before any turtles. The first amphibian footprints are 30 million years before any amphibian fossils. And the first dinosaur footprints yeah, wow. are several million years before dinosaurs in the conventional timeline. And, and the first big dinosaur carnivorous footprints are before the big carnivorous dinosaurs are seen. So there's this weird pattern showing up yeah. that indicates that there's not much time going on here. 
Yeah, that is interesting. So I have to ask about this because um, I've seen this in a few different places, and that was um, the idea that there's soft tissue inside dinosaur bones. Can you? Mm-hmm. Um, is there is there any validity to that? Oh, there certainly is. Yeah. The first major discovery and an announcement of this happened in 2005 with Dr. Mary Schweitzer and her team from University of uh, North Carolina, Chapel Hill, uh, colleagues at the uh, Montana State um, University as well. Uh, that's where she had done her PhD work. She was working with Jack Horner, uh, who was the model for uh, the paleontologist in the old, Dra- the original Jurassic Park movies. So Alan Grant is based mm-hmm. on Jack Horner. That's great. Uh, a legendary paleontology. He's, he's, he's amazing. Um, and so in 2005, she reports for the first time that there was still preserved soft tissue within the femur bone of a Tyrannosaurus rex, so the upper leg bone of a T-Rex. And she showed a video in which she was taking tweezers and pulling this tissue and it would snap back into place. It looked like a blood vessel. Oh my goodness. And yeah, the pic- the pictures of this are really amazing. Uh, I mean, the, the scientific paper, it was published in Science that year, uh, was really extraordinary. Um, you've got these kind of branching structures that look like blood vessels that are splitting. And even like right where my knuckle would be, there's this red round ball right there inside the tube. It looks like a preserved red blood cell, wow. uh, which for dinosaurs had a nucleus. Uh, mammals are the only animals where the red blood cells don't have a nucleus and have that weird flattened disc sort of shape. Everybody else has a ball. So they know that that's an iron rich ball inside the branch. And of course, red blood cells carry hemoglobin, which is iron rich. So it's very likely that they had some red blood cells there. Um, That was widely criticized. Uh, Schweitzer was not easily believed by a lot of people. Uh, And so there were others that had said, well, actually, maybe what happened is Bacteria later invaded the bones where the blood vessels used to be, coated the inside, and made these tough little structures that look like blood vessels, but were actually just a bacterial film, a coating. And uh, so she continued to work both on the T-Rex, where they recovered some additional information, and also uh, recovered a new fossil from another layer down from where the T-Rex was, uh, a duckbill dinosaur by the name of uh, Brachylophosaurus, if I remember, uh, Brachylophosaurus canadensis. And in that, they found the same materials all over again. They sequenced proteins from the material. So they were able to actually copy out and figure that, yes, we actually have proteins in here. And the proteins that they found were specific to vertebrate animals. Not bacterial protein. Wow, that's wow. Wow. But vertebrate proteins, things like collagen. So, um, collagen, right, uh, makes up like the stuff underneath your skin that helps to keep your skin mostly in place. So, it's an elastic, stretchy material. It's pretty durable. And you find that in vertebrate animals. You do not find that in bacteria. Bacteria. Mm -hmm. So, they were able to sequence three specific vertebrate proteins. They also found DNA uh, in that. Uh, as well. Now it was DNA that had been sent through a chipper shredder, right? They they found like little bits of ones and twos and threes of your ATGs and Cs. Um, they weren't looking for anything bigger, so there could be larger units in there. But they at least did find snippets of DNA. Wow. Now you're wow. not going to reconstruct anything out of that, but um, nonetheless, 
uh, their work, they can just continued. So they've, they've put out papers in 2005, 2009, 2012, 13, 18. I mean, they're just continuing to put it out. And Schweitzer is an astonishingly good paleontologist and an outstanding biological researcher. Uh, she does not think that these dinosaurs are young, uh, just to make that very, very clear for your audience. She holds to a conventional timescale to biological evolution. Uh, and she does not think that these evidences point towards a young Earth. I think that they are very compatible with a young Earth and flood-derived history to the dinosaurs. Um, but that's my take on her research, not hers. Sure. Interesting. Wow, wow, wow. Okay. Um, all right. So prior, uh, even you know, even before the flood, but before the fall, um, do you believe that the dinosaurs were predatory uh, before that time? That's a that's a good question and a tricky one in the history of the church. Actually, um, you can go back and read Augustine, and he thought that you know lions were predatory because how can you be a lion unless you're a lion, type of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas others have said no. Prior to the fall, the world was uh, completely peaceful and animals were herbivorous. Uh, they get that by taking a look at uh, say Genesis one thirty in the sixth day when God has created man and now he's addressing his creation. He says to, um, to mankind, he says that I'm going to give you the, you know, the plants, uh, to eat, you know, the fruit, yeah. with the seed in it and all that. And then he turns to the animals and says in the same way, all the animals get the fruits and, and things like that. Mm-hmm. So there's this direct correspondence between the vegetarian nature of human activity at the beginning. And it seems like that is then connected to the animals. Yeah. Um, so I, my suspicion is that animals were all herbivorous prior to the uh, prior to the fall. I think after the fall, we have enough of a rupture that happens to the created economy uh, that predatory activity is either initiated by God as a response to the fall. Like if you're going to have a world in which sinfulness and selfishness now dominate or or are int- introduced, then. Uh, there's going to have to be different kinds of checks and balances on things. And otherwise, the world of plants is doomed. They're going to be completely overrun uh, by organisms. So I think it's quite possible that it's at that mm-hmm. point that predator-prey interactions are introduced. Others have thought maybe it's a, a slow fuse that basically creation degrades over time with more and more animals becoming carnivorous. I find that harder to come to grips with because I think that it's going to require a, a much greater wholesale change to organisms themselves. Um, I, I, when I look at the curse on the serpent in Genesis chapter, chapter three, uh, God says to the serpent, cursed are you above all creatures or more yeah. than all creatures. Yeah. So um, in Hebrew, this is a construction called minkol, um, uh, mikol, sorry. And uh, it involves the word min, and coal above and all. And when you see this used elsewhere in scripture, it's always a comparison between two things. So in this case, what you've got is the serpent is cursed more than all the other animals. And so that seems to me to indicate that the curse on the serpent is part of something general that is extending out into creation. Um, But the serpent is experiencing a greater component to that because of mm. its hand in tempting Adam and Eve. Wow. 
Wow, wow, wow. That is really, really, really interesting. Um, yeah, how many times have, have I read that and and not made that connection? That that wow, that's 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 great. It's subtle, um, kind of like the serpent, right? Yeah, it's, 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 it's it is, in there. It is very subtle, but it is there. Um, yeah, you're absolutely right. Wow. Okay. Um, so you know, people that argue against um, this idea that you just put forth point to, I mean, you mentioned Augustine with the, with the lion, obviously a lion has uh, claws, teeth, um, but people point to like animals like a scorpion. Um, mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, you know, how do you account for um, animals that seem to have, um, you know, predator built into who they are? Yeah, you know, and actually, the cats are a very good example for this. Cats are what we refer to in biology as hypercarnivores, and not just because we want to sound cool, like "oh, it's a hypercarnivore." Uh, what that means is like the animal's body and dentition are so focused on carnivory that they really can't do much of anything else. So, for example, a dog's mouth is you know fairly long, right? Unless you've we've done something terrible like turn them into a pug, um, but if you yeah, which I don't even know if they count as dogs at that point anymore. It's just they're sad, sad creatures. It's it's part of the curse, right? Um, so, <laughs> but if you think about a dog or a wolf skull, it's it's fairly long and lean, and they've got sharp grabbing. They've got kind of grabbing teeth out front, sharp teeth in the middle, and then crunching teeth towards mm -hmm. the back. Right. Yeah. Cats, on the other hand, have grabbing, stabbing teeth in the front, slicing teeth, and then nothing else. They don't. Uh, they have very tiny little molars. They have, their molars are like little buttons, um, and so they don't even really chew their food. They just slice it um, and and crush it a little bit and send it back. So a dog has a better chance of eating a wider variety of foods, including some non-meat things, because its dentition can at least allow it to try and do something else. Cats, not so much. Um, they they've got to eat meat. Um, or kibbles, right? We supplement them in different ways, but um, they're they're just totally dedicated in that direction, and that's a that's a hard question. I mean, getting into like the why would God make creatures like that? How do we get to creatures uh, like that? Evolution proposes that we you know usually go from carnivores into herbivores, um, or you go from omnivores into the other two don't usually see many instances in uh, paleontology where somebody argues that you go from a herbivore into a carnivore. Um, hmm. It's just kind of a, one of those interesting trends that's supposed to be there in the, in the fossil record. So yeah, I would think that if, if the curse on creation is as big as what I think it is, that the ripple effects involve a wholesale kind of remodeling of creation in a way. Um, in order to produce a world that is going to be able to have some balance in the midst of sin. So I mentioned the, the serpent and the curse extending out into the rest of the animal world. That's one half of the curse. But we tend to think about the curse on Adam and Eve, but actually the word curse is never used with them. Praise God, because yeah. the the word the, the particular kind of curse that's used by God there is you don't want that curse. That's There's no getting away from it. So God curses the serpent um, in part because Adam and Eve don't have dominion over it the way that they ought to. 
right? When you think about the two, the two things that human beings are supposed to do from the very beginning is have dominion over the beasts of the field mm-hmm. and to um, and to subdue the earth. Those are the two things in Genesis 1. In Genesis 2, we see how those work out. We see that dominion over the animals involves things like naming them, deciding what their role is. Um, and then dominion, uh, sorry, and then, sorry, um, subduing the earth involves tending the garden, right? Causing it to grow and proliferate and probably to extend its borders out. As you mentioned, Eden is a place, the garden's in it, and Adam's placed there. So Adam is supposed to expand this territory out into the world that is not yet a garden. So they listen to the serpent, which is improper dominion, and then they eat of the wrong fruit, which is improper subduing and improper care. Mm -hmm. And in return, God curses the serpent and the ground. The two areas in which humanity is supposed to work are now cursed and frustrated, which to me says that means the curse is cosmic. It affects absolutely everything. All of what we were supposed to do is now under a curse. Mm, wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Now you go, okay. And, and you see echoes of that in places like uh, Hebrews 8, where Paul talks about the creation as groaning and frustration, like a, like a woman who's in the pains of childbirth. Well, yeah. where we heard about groanings and pain of childbirth and curses, yeah. Whoa, way back Genesis 3. So Paul's making a very, very clear allusion mm-hmm. to the way that the curse that it has been sent out has now affected the entirety of creation such that all of creation is mm-hmm. waiting for our redemption. Yeah. God for God to finally come take us and set things right once again. So I I look at carnivores, things like scorpion and, and you know evil creatures in a sense, the, the, the bad stuff out there. Um, and say, this is, this is the world we have to live in. We, we have to be confronted with the reality of sin and death and pain, um, because of what happened back in the garden and because of our continual sin, right? We're all responsible for ourselves. We can put a lot of blame on Adam, but I also can't blame Adam for the sin that I've done today. Um, but this world is cursed. Um, and, that helps us to develop a, a theodicy um, to understand why we've got sin and pain and death. Um, not that that answer is entirely easy. It's not. Uh, we still have to wrestle a lot with these, these issues. Um, but I think young earth creationism provides us with an answer to these that is scripturally far more consistent than any of the other views that require yeah. sin and death to exist for hundreds of millions of years. And it's all dislocated from sin itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great, man. Uh, I think that's that's fascinating. Um, I love it. Okay, uh, were dinosaurs on the ark? I would think so, right? Okay, so given the fact that I'm a young Earth creationist, I already said dinosaurs were created on day six, so their fossils are formed during the flood. I think that two of every kind of of land breathing air uh, air or sorry. Uh, air-breathing, land-dwelling animal was brought on the ark. Now, how many kinds of dinosaurs were there? That's an interesting research question. And a good friend and colleague of mine, Dr. Matt McLean at uh, the Master's University, has spent a lot of time looking at how many kinds of dinosaurs might we have, how would we know, looking at different statistical methodologies that we might use for this. 
Um, and I've looked into that a little bit as well, but he's done way more than that on I than I have. Um, but I would say that we're probably looking at somewhere between 70 and 150 different kinds of dinosaurs. Um, I tend probably a little bit on the lower end of that spectrum than the higher. Um, if we look at something like the family level of, of taxonomy as a, a good approximation, at least for what the kinds are, then we're probably somewhere around 70 to 100 different types of dinosaurs that are going to be brought on the ark. Is the ark big enough for that? Yeah, it is. Especially if you're not going to be bringing like, you know, great grandma, you know, brontosaur on the sure. ark, right? You, yeah. You've got to bring animals that are going to be able to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth afterward. That command is given to them, just like it's given to the Genesis one creatures. Um, so you're probably going to want to bring younger members, which are going to be smaller. They'll have time to mature when they get out on the, uh, when they get onto the ark. Um, and so smaller representatives from the kinds and younger members from within them allow you to bring on plenty of different organisms. And uh, there's been a number of different studies within creationism to look at, is the ark capable of handling all of these? And the answer, I think, is quite easily yes. Uh, we probably have somewhere on the order of two, 3,000 organisms uh, that are on board the ark. And uh, that's, that's enough to repopulate the world. Um, but it's also not like, you know, you might hear a skeptic say, well, there's 10 million species on earth today. You can't put them all in the ark. Like, well, no, you can't. Um, but first off, God's not putting fish um, on the ark and he's not cultivating uh, cultures of amoebas and things like that, right? There's a whole bunch of things out there that don't need to go on the ark. You look at what the Bible yeah. says go on and then you look, I think, both at the world around us and the world of the fossil record and you can come up with a very reasonable number. Yeah. All right. So... Mm -mm -mm -mm. Um, so let me, I'll ask about their extinction then, um, you know, how, how and why, uh, do we not see these creatures anymore? Yeah. And my, my PhD work actually looked at the extinction of the Mosasaurs, uh, the big marine swimming reptiles. And if you saw Jurassic world, the, the big swimming one, that's a Mosasaurus. Yeah slightly larger than real life by a factor of three, but you know, whatever it's, it's Hollywood. You say genetically modified organism and physics doesn't have to apply anymore. Sure. Um, so, <laughs> um, so I looked at, at them for my PhD because they uh, go extinct in the same units as the last of the dinosaurs do. So con from a conventional perspective, you've got the question, does the meteorite that supposedly kills the dinosaurs also kill off the Mosasaurs? And I would say at least from an old earth perspective, that answer is probably yes. Uh, it looks like mosasaurs are doing fine until one bad day when a meteor hits. And then after that, there's kind of no more mosasaurs. Um, and I think actually that much of the same explanation is available for mosasaurs in the flood, but not so much the dinosaurs. The dinosaurs being land dwelling and air breathing organisms, um, they're being wiped out because the flood is overrunning their, their territory. Right. There's most dinosaurs are not going to swim. They're not that good at it. Um, T-Rex could probably swim okay, but he's going to ford a river. He's not going to go out in the ocean type of thing. Yeah. Um, so I think that the fossil record that we have of the dinosaurs represents their destruction during Noah's flood. If some were brought on board the ark, then it would seem the dinosaurs have a chance afterwards to reestablish themselves. And I don't think that that ends up happening. Um, my colleague, Dr. Kurt Wise, has noted something I think that's kind of important about 
dinosaurs. And that is when you find dinosaur fossils, you don't find just dinosaur fossils. You find other things with them. Uh, you find other types of reptiles like lizards. You find birds. You find uh, various types of plants. And the types of plants that are typically associated with dinosaurs are not the plants that dominate our world today. Uh, the types of plants that dinosaurs seem to be eating are plants that mm. either are largely extinct or entirely extinct, or if they are around today, mm. they are pushed out into these very marginal environments and tend to be small dwarf members of their created kinds that used to be also with larger individual types in them. And so if you think about dinosaurs, not just as entities, but as an ecosystem where you have dependent and uh, relationships between different types of organisms. If the predators require a certain type of prey, but that prey doesn't have the sort of food that it's used to eating around, then as the prey die out, the predators die out with them unless they can change yeah, their sense. behavior, yeah, right? Sure. So what you might have yeah. is actually what we would consider a trophic collapse. The, the whole structure of that dinosaurian ecosystem collapses because there isn't enough food to sustain the base of it. Um, whereas the mammals that are coming off of the ark, I think, generally speaking, are small to begin with, much smaller than the dinosaurs. They're more uh, nimble in the types of foods that they are able to eat. And the types of food that they're able to eat are succeeding better in the post-flood world. The types of of uh, angiosperm plants, for example, that dominate the leafy plants with fruits and stuff like that. So I think that that gives that community a much better shot at survival and development in the post-flood world. The dinosaurs just really don't end up reestablishing themselves. Yeah. Um, and I think that probably happens fairly quick. Uh, even though the dinosaurs are young, getting a chance, right, trying to have babies and whatnot, they're still large animals. And there's probably not that much food out there for them. And so I think their ecosystem collapses quickly, um, probably within a couple of centuries uh, of the flood. Yeah. So my next question would be the creatures, behemoth and leviathan uh, that are described at the end of Job. Uh, would you say those are dinosaurs? I'd be very cautious about saying that they're dinosaurs. Uh, very, very cautious for a couple of reasons. Um, I mean, your your channel explores some interesting aspects of theology uh, quite frequently, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, as well as I do, Job is a wild book um, yes. and a really peculiar one. And the the speech of God at the end of Job is one of the most peculiar and strange and difficult to interpret passages of the of the Old Testament. Uh, mm -hmm. it, it ranks up there with some of the stuff in Ezekiel and what's going on in Isaiah. It's poetry is hard. This part's not. Uh, this part is poetry as well. Poetry is always hard because the words that are used tend to be unique. Um, Job has more unique words in it uh, than any other book in the Bible, save Isaiah, um, which is twice as long. And so you've got all of these all these words that are seen nowhere else in the Bible, and we don't exactly always know what they are. Authors also play around with words and ordering and, you know, uh, complete versus incomplete sentences and play on words that that make it really hard to interpret. So Job is just a difficult, difficult book, tricky, and the Hebrew is hard. So at the end of God, uh, at the end of, of Job's discussion with his friend, God comes in and says, 
all right, tuck in your robes, man. This is, we have to talk, right? Yeah. Stand up, be a man, because I'm going to talk now. And so we get first this series of rhetorical questions where God is asking Job, have you been there when I laid the, you know, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? And that might be hard sarcasm, or it might be a probing question like, hey, were you there when I did this, right? We, we have to, I'm reading a book by uh, Eric Ortland right now on the book of Job. And it's fascinating because one of his questions is, what is God's speech doing that causes Job first to um, to change, have a bit of a change of heart, and then in the second speech of Job to completely repent. You know, it's not just yeah, that God smashes them down and says you're an idiot and you have no space here, but it's also got to be something that Job's relationship with God is in some way restored to the point where he's like, I, I, I'm just undone and I worship you and I'm going to offer sacrifices to you. So. God starts off with asking him things about the created order and can you have any control over this? And the answer is always no. Then he talks about a whole bunch of different animals that we're familiar with, things like uh, lions and an ibex and the ostrich and mm-hmm. you know the warhorse, and says like these things are all outside of your control for the most part, except for the warhorse. But but it's like super powerful and you know God knows what's going on with these animals. You don't even know when the goats mate and when they have their kids, and yet I'm in control of all of this. Yeah. So the God, so Job says, you know, I shouldn't have said anything. I'm putting my hand over my mouth and God says, all right, well, pick up your pants and be prepared again. Cause going we're going to talk about two other things. And so he introduces behemoth and Leviathan. And so scholarship has, has divided in two paths on this one saying these are real animals that God is describing, usually in some sort of poetic, kind of hyperbolic way. Mm-hmm. And the usual candidates are hippo and crocodile. Yep. The second approach is to say that these are mythological organisms. They're chaos creatures from yep. the ancient Near East that Job knows about literarily. They're, they're part and parcel of the culture. Everybody knows about Leviathan. Everybody knows about this stuff. Um, and you see Leviathan used as a chaos creature elsewhere in scripture. So there's precedent for that. It's it's this big, nasty sea monster. And behemoth is this beast. That's just what its name means. Actually, it means beasts, plural, but God's talking about it as a singular thing. So most young earth creationists consider behemoth and leviathan uh, to be real creatures. Um, some of them think of them as hippo and and crocodile, but especially amongst young earth creation ministries like Answers in Genesis, ICR, Creation Ministries International, um, and a lot of people have written books and stuff, they tend to say, no, behemoth is a dinosaur because that tail swaying like a cedar tree just doesn't really match the hippo, right? And if you ever get a chance to see a picture of a hippo's tail, go ahead and Google it. It's not impressive. It's about two feet long, kind of squiggly like a pig's, and it doesn't. It's not straight. It doesn't sway like a cedar tree. It's, it's. There's nothing about it that would actually draw your attention there. Um, on the other hand, dinosaurs have these big long tails that are held out relatively straight due to the musculature uh, that connects their legs to their tail. So every time they take a step forward, the tail sways a bit to that side. They take another step forward, the tail sways to the next side. And so back and forth, the tail could sway like a cedar tree. And, you know, phrases like the behemoth is the first among God's creations. 
Okay. Does that mean first as in made first or rank or both or, you know, what? I don't know. Um, again, the Hebrew gets very, very tricky here. So the end thing, though, is that now that people know about dinosaurs and they want to think about God making something that is the most impressive thing ever, then they're going to say, oh, it's obviously a sauropod dinosaur, long neck sauropod dinosaur. Well, that's not that obvious to me, because if you're going to be talking about a sauropod dinosaur, I'd expect that you'd talk about its neck. Yeah, you know, that's, that's a good point. You know, it, it's got this really, really long neck with a mm -hmm. small head at the end. There's no description of that. Um, mm -hmm. There is the tail. And if this is a real animal, and if the tail described in Job is actually a tail, then dinosaur can work. That's that's a possibility. And as a young earth creationist, that's an open option for me. Um, we do have to be careful, though, because in post-biblical Hebrew, the word tail is also used as a euphemism for a penis. So, you know, if that thing is swaying like a cedar tree, then it's talking about the manliness of the creature and has nothing to do with the tail yeah. whatsoever. I don't know that I like that because you don't usually use a euphemism for an animal's body part using another body part that it has. Yeah. That doesn't make much sense. So like if you're saying something about an animal's tail, you're actually talking about its tail. You're, you're not talking about something else. You're not using the word elbow as a euphemism for a knee. So, yeah. but again, this is a tricky component and behemoth is, is simply the Hebrew word for beasts. It's Whereas all the other animals that we just saw actually had names. It's lion, it's ostrich, it's wild ox and goat mm -hmm. and horse. Yeah, so yeah. behemoth, on the other hand, is this thing that is described with this generic name that we see in Genesis 1, when God creates the beasts of the field, the behemoth. Um, here, or in Genesis 1, it's behemoth. It's a singular used as a plural. Here we have a plural that's used as a singular. It's really an interesting play hmm. going on there. So that's some of the things that lend people to say, well, maybe it's a mythological creature because it doesn't seem to match the description of any one real animal. And it's also described as with a name that indicates a composite nature. So maybe it's a mythological creature that is some sort of reflection of something else. It could be a chaos creature. Um, another uh, Hebrew scholar from South uh, Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, uh, Dwayne Garrett, he thinks that behemoth and Leviathan are kind of proto-apocalyptic descriptions, that these are like the animals that are like the beast and the dragon in Revelation. Mm -hmm. And the Leviathan as another creature that again, isn't given a normal name. It's not, a, it's not given the name crocodile which the Hebrews would have had. Um, it's described as an animal that has all this power, all this, you know, armor and shielding and stuff. But then it does things like breathes fire and, you know, ignites coals with its breath. And there are no fire breathing animals. And there, as far as I can tell in the fossil record, there never have been. <laughs> the physics of making a dragon that breathes fire are, are not viable uh, to the natural world. Uh, despite some creationists saying that certain dinosaurs might have been able to breathe fire. No, 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 let's not go there. That's kind of a silly world. Um, you might say that God is describing a real animal in highly stylized poetic ways in order to emphasize its power. And I think that's fair. That's Job is doing that a lot. Um, mm -hmm. You can say that, you know, Leviathan's it says that its heart or maybe its chest are as hard as a stone. In fact, as hard as the lower millstone. Well, 
you can't have a heart that's as hard as a millstone because then it can't beat, right? So we know that there is poetic license that's being taken here, and that's perfectly acceptable. So I vacillate right now back and forth between thinking that these are real animals and thinking that these are composite mythological creatures, or if not mythology, I don't like using that word because people think that means fake, but rather um, creatures that represent cosmic powers that are aligned against God. And Leviathan, I think uh, there's a very good case to make that 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 is representing a creature or a cosmic power like Satan uh, that is aligned against God. And who is it that can defeat these? It's not Job. It's not mankind. It's God. God can approach Behemoth with his sword. God can put an end to Leviathan. No one else can. And if we're talking about things like Satan and dark powers, then this is absolutely true. If we're talking about crocodiles, um, well, people kill crocodiles and, and have been for, for millennia um, and hunted hippopotamus. So, you know, the, the Egyptians would actually ritually kill hippopotami every year as part of a celebration of a particular war between two gods. And they had instructions for how to kill crocodiles. So, you know, if behemoth and leviathan are something like dinosaurs, eh, maybe, you know, you could say, are you going to be able to kill the brontosaurus? And the answer is going to be no. Um, are you going to be able to kill something else that Leviathan is? I have no idea what Leviathan might be besides something scaly, breathing air, and living in the water. There's not enough to dis to distinguish between a huge crocodile or anything else. Um, but on the other hand, the, the fact that only God is capable of taming and destroying these types of creatures does lend itself pretty well to thinking of them as something uh, more cosmic as enemies of the, of the one true God. Yes. Wow. I really appreciate uh, that answer because um, I asked you a difficult, a difficult question. And I think that's, um, I think that's very well said. I, I too have, I I've gone uh, from like, this is dinosaur all the way to this is hippo crocodile all the way. And I think to your point, if I'm remembering this correctly, Isaiah 51, Ezekiel 29, I think uh, Leviathan's mentioned a couple other times and it does mm -hmm. in those cases seem to lend towards um, a highly symbolic creature. Um, we even see uh, Leviathan is mentioned in Job 3 in Job's first speech. Uh, yes. He's when he's cursing the day that he was born, he's he's asking the magicians to let Leviathan loose. Um, mm. In ancient Egypt, uh, the magicians would do incantations to keep Leviathan from consuming the sun as it went down. So they wanted to maintain the natural order and the sun has to come. So they have to pray so that Leviathan doesn't eat the sun. And Job seems to be saying, let him go. Let the Leviathan take the sun and make it all dark. Um, and so there's actually a whole lot of things in Job 3 that of Job's initial complaint against God that God is returning to in his mm -hmm. speech of uh, of chapters 38 through 42. And this wow. is one of them. And we also see yeah. uh, Leviathan mentioned in Psalms twice. Uh, one of them is Psalm 104, yeah. where it seems like right. Leviathan is very clearly just an animal. It's, mm -hmm. it's frolicking, in fact, out in the ocean amongst the ships. And you're like, whoa, wait, frolic? Like if you were an ancient Israelite and somebody's like, oh yeah, and the Leviathan is frolicking, it's at play. You'd be like, whoa, no, because Leviathan's terrible. 
-hmm. it doesn't play. Play is bad. Um, or the Hebrew there could actually also mean that God created Leviathan to play with it, right? It's like, which is even crazier. Like, oh yeah, here's my little friend. You know, here's the Leviathan. Yay, yeah. puppy. <laughs> and you know, again, that's that's the the weird nuances that we run into with poetry that it's sometimes hard to even say whether or not the Leviathan is at play in the sea or God is playing with Leviathan in the sea. Yeah. That's not entirely clear. So um, so yeah, in in most of the instances, the few instances that we have of Leviathan, it is a chaos creature. Um, it is something that is opposed to order and opposed to God and God controls or defeats. Um, but then there's also like, yeah, but there's also the Leviathan out there in the ocean and they're just having fun. And, and it's part of God's good creation and God doesn't come and destroy them or anything like that. I think that is probably playing against Genesis 1 because Psalm 104 is structured around Genesis 1. And when you get to the seas, what's made in the seas are... Well, in Genesis 1, they mentioned things like the tenin, which means sea monsters or sea creatures. And rather than use the word tenin in Psalm 104, Leviathan is used. I think that there's a deliberate play between monsters of two kinds uh, in that, because um, it's kind of surprising that tenin is not used when you might expect it. Um, but Psalm 104 does a lot of those things where you're kind of expecting it to do one thing and it's it's just shifting it a little bit as it follows Genesis 1 thematically uh, through this glorification of God and the magnificent creation that he's made. Hmm. Wow, okay, that's wonderful. Um, just a couple more questions. Um, back to dinosaurs, right? <laughs> back to dinosaurs. Um, I actually, uh, I read... James B. Jordan, a theologian, he did a commentary on Genesis 2 and 3 called Trees and Thorns. He proposes in that work that the serpent was a dinosaur. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, we have Revelation 12, where we have a, a dragon there. And it's also referred to as a serpent, Satan, the devil. Um, anyway, I guess my question is, the serpent in Genesis 3, um, what type of creature do you believe that was? It's a serpent. There's, there's no getting around the Hebrew on this one. Um, the, the Hebrew word for the serpent in Genesis 3 is nachash, um, and that's serpent. It's used for the serpents that the uh, Egyptian magicians use, um, that uh, Moses reaches out and turns the the serpent, you know, throws his staff and it becomes a serpent. It becomes a nachash. So I don't see any linguistic reason uh, within Hebrew. Not that I'm a Hebraist. I'll, I'll just put that out there. Um, but um, I, I've been reading a lot uh, and, and trying to familiarize myself with at least the types of terms that are used and, and whatnot. Um, and Nahash is definitely a snake. Um, does the snake have legs at that time? Don't know, right? That's, that goes back to, uh, certainly early Jewish common comment on Genesis three is this is how serpents end up legless is that when God casts them down and says, you're going to eat dust, um, that they are, um, that they are to become limbless at that point, maybe. Uh, maybe not. We do have some fossil snakes in the in the record that have like little tiny limbs. 
uh, on them. So, uh, and, and we even see in modern snakes that there are developing, developing limb buds. Every once in a while, you'll see like a ball python that's born with this tiny little femur uh, that comes out some, some bits of, a, of a pelvis uh, to it. But um, when, when we think of the, the great enemy of God, of Satan, uh, and when he when that enemy is described in physical terms like it is in Genesis three, I think this was a real serpent that was probably possessed, you know, by Satan. The fact that it's talking is unusual, and sh everybody should be like antennas up a little bit here. Um, but it's interesting because in the Old Testament and in the New, when when uh, the serpent is um, deceptive. Or, or when Satan is being deceptive and lying, he is characterized as a snake. But when Satan is described as destructive and consuming, he's described as a dragon. So it's the two sides to the coin on this: the deceptive versus the the um, you know just destructive side yeah. of things. And and we see that kind of bounce back, you know. And, and of course, John makes it perfectly clear that you know this this uh, dragon was the serpent, the devil, right? So he's he's making sure that we connect all those dots along the way. Um, to call it to call it a, a dinosaur is um, is to impart uh, very foreign ideas uh, onto the text, and, and we really ought to uh, avoid doing that. Yeah, I got you. Um, when we see the word dragon in scripture, should we? think of that I mean, you already mentioned you don't um believe there's any way for there to be a, like a fire beating dragon that we see in mythology um would you see that as uh a dinosaur when, when you hear the word dragon i would not and, and I, this is another way in which sometimes i end up parting ways with some of my creationist buddies right i'm a mm -hmm. younger creationist but um, it's frequently said that, you know, oh, the, the word dinosaur wasn't invented until 1842. And before that, people just called them dragons. Mm -hmm. um, I run into that, especially on the major ministry websites, uh, frequently. Um, I don't think that's a very responsible thing to say. Um, and, and to decide that any time that a dragon is mentioned, uh, either in the Bible or in other ancient writings and and uh, images and things like that. Oh, the ancient Chinese, they, they understood dragons and, and they knew those were really dinosaurs or this tapestry shows a picture of a dragon. It's really this dinosaur on it. Go like, let, let's, let's put the brakes on that here for a little bit because the, the word dragon has a long and pedigreed history to itself. And dinosaur has a very short pedigree and to take our term now and jump back and, and force it into the past, mm -hmm. uh, Theologically, we call that eisegesis, right? When you've got an idea that you want the text to say, and so you make it say that, sure. uh, you read it into the text. We're doing the same thing here. So when the Bible is talking about a dragon, uh, like something like Leviathan, for example, or the dragon in Revelation, certainly don't call that a dinosaur. That's that's Satan. And the Bible is describing him in a way that causes great concern and fear and whatnot for us, because we need to be afraid of Satan. He is powerful and, and his temptations are strong and he seeks our, our destruction. We're warned about him. Um, we don't have to fear our souls because those are secure in Christ, but we do have to fear, you know, at least those physical things that Satan can throw our way. And, um, so let's let's keep our 
let's keep our apples and our oranges separate on this. Dinosaurs are created beings. They are things that I think are day six creations. Um, to our knowledge, all dinosaurs are extinct as far as when we normally think about dinosaurs, T-Rex, Triceratops, et cetera. Um, and I think that they went extinct very soon after the flood. I don't think that we have any biblical, I mean, outside of the behemoth as the best case scenario here, um, we have no instance in the Bible of dinosaurs mentioned. Um, and we should avoid calling dragons dinosaurs simply because we know about dinosaurs and and they didn't. Well, they knew about what they meant when they were talking about dragons. Yeah. I noticed uh, in the King James in the footnote, when it uses the word dragon, sometimes you'll see it um, like an alternative interpretation is jackal. Um, mm. So, I mean, originally when that was written dragon, um, would they have the same idea of the mythological dragon that, that we have? Or are they not thinking quite something the same, different? But yeah, not quite the same, but maybe not entirely dissimilar. But for <clears throat> for the ancient Hebrews, uh, especially as we're thinking about something like Job, uh, where it was a very, very old uh, story. When it was written is another question, but the story itself seems to be very old, about the time of Abram, give or take. Um, you know, this is a sea monster. We think of dragons as flying creatures that breathe fire. Um, there's no indication in scripture about, uh, in Job, for example, about Leviathan flying. It is an ocean creature and it unleashes watery chaos uh, on people. And, you know, there's mm -hmm. there's the fire breathing aspect uh, to this as well. Um, and in other places where it talks about seven heads or in the book of Revelation, right? Talk about seven heads. But um, almost entirely, we're talking about an animal that is an ocean creature. So, you know, go back to Clash of the Titans uh, and, and think of your ocean monsters there, but don't think of um, don't think of how to train your dragon uh, as as your models for these sorts of things. It's yeah. they're not winged. Certainly, that is something that comes about much much later on. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Okay, cool. Um, this will be my last question. This is uh, more just for fun. This is out of my curiosity, actually, because uh, I watched. Um, you know, the Jurassic Park series growing up, and then they, you know, yeah. have now come out with the Jurassic World series. And in this last movie, uh, one of the characters, um, the the doctor, the one who's um, creating the dinosaurs, um, they're arguing, uh, this is in the latest movie, and he says, you know, we don't, um, you know, we've always filled in the gaps, and you wanted these fearsome you know, creatures and animals and it, something he said implied that perhaps, you know, the dinosaurs that we see in Jurassic Park didn't really look and sound like, um, you know, the actual creatures. Uh, so I, I, um, I guess my question, and I don't know if you can answer this, uh, is do you think that our ideas and depictions of these dinosaurs um, could have been uh, a reality? I, you know, one thing that I've always loved about the Jurassic Park movies, um, not always their plots, those, those have gone up and down uh, over the years, but the dis the depiction of dinosaurs um, in Jurassic Park movies has almost always been as accurate as anything that we would expect, given the, the scientific knowledge that we have at the time. Um, Spielberg did hold back on putting feathers on dinosaurs for a long time, uh, in part because um, the idea was very, very radical when the first Jurassic uh, Park movies were coming out, and he didn't want them also to look really weird on screen. 
Um, if he had something that was covered in feathers, it was going to be much more difficult to animate. He didn't want something looking like Big Bird when it was supposed to look like a velociraptor. So he didn't want what he called, I think at the time, technicolor dinosaurs. Um, but that being said, like the, the anatomy, the behavior of the dinosaurs largely is, is quite good. Um, you know, there's, there's some places where you go like, no, 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 that, that didn't work at all. Like the Dilophosaurus with the big frills that come off the side of its head. It didn't have anything like that. That, that got slapped on from a lizard somewhere. Mm -hmm. Um, T-Rex, uh, or, or Velociraptors being able to run as fast as a cheetah, mm, not that fast, but it didn't matter because they'd still run faster than you anyway. So <laughs> It's just a matter of how many steps do you have to take before they get you. Yeah. Fewer, fewer with the cheetah, a few more with the velociraptor. But either way, it's going to be a very bad way to go. Um, and when we get to Jurassic World, and when the series starts back up again after taking a break after Jurassic Park 3, um, we start to see feathered hints of feathered dinosaurs. And in the last one, there's a lot. Uh, you get a, a a raptor dinosaur called um, oh what is it? Um, oh, forgetting the name, it's right off the tip of my tongue. But anyway, um, Atrociraptor, uh, which is known from Canada, um, great name. It's atrocious, right? It's terrible, mm -hmm. terrible raptor, and this big sickle clawed thing that's all furry, fluffy, fuzzy, feathery sort of thing called a Therizinosaurus. And uh, from what we know of the fossil record, those are entirely accurate representations. Um, Therizinosaurus has a close cousin called Bepiosaurus that is covered in feather-like down and fluff. Um, and Atrociraptor mm -hmm. is part of the raptor group. And we've got several species of raptors now that we have evidence of full plumage on or other evidences of feathers. And uh, actually today... Um, just as we're recording right now, um, I should have a paper with Matt McLean, who I mentioned earlier, and a couple other authors, uh, where we're talking about uh, feathers on dinosaurs and the evidence for feathers on dinosaurs. That's being published at answersresearchjournal.com, uh, mm -hmm. I think it is. Um, so that should be posting later on today, in which we're interacting with another creationist uh, paleontologist who said there are, you know, there's like this hard split between birds and dinosaurs. Dinosaurs don't have feathers, birds do. Having bird having feathers means you're a bird, and we look at it and say, no, the the criterion of being a bird doesn't rest on feathers alone. Um, and there's plenty of good evidence for feathers in a whole bunch of dinosaurs out there. So when Jurassic World portrays them as being plumed, um, I actually, you know, I'm, I'm sitting there going, yeah, and even more of them. Uh, the Velociraptors should be plumed, but keeping canon, you know, with with the way that they were, you could always say, well, when we first engineered them, we didn't put in feathers because we didn't think they were going to have them. And that would be a very consistent way of dealing with your velociraptors across the series. So that's fine. But I, I honestly really liked what they did with Henry Wu as a character in that first Jurassic World movie mm -hmm. and turning him into such a sinister individual who really just kind of lays it out. This is science unfettered. You wanted stuff. We made it for you. This has never been about actual reality because we've never been able to make the actual dinosaurs. We've got to put in bits and parts. And that's what gave Jurassic Park you know, its ethos as a book and as the first movie is, yeah, you had the dinosaurs, but the problem was that we had to also stitch together some other things and that caused problems for us down the road. Because we gave them frog DNA, the females were able to convert into males 
and we're able to lay eggs that could be fertilized, right? And yeah. so Wu in this one, you know, you see him in the first movie and then you don't see him ever again in the Jurassic Park series. Then he pops up again in Jurassic World and becomes an important character who has this really arc of salvation, if you will, where he is full tilt in doing whatever it is that he wants. Kind of very much a James Watson approach to genetics. Watson's really nasty guy. Um, his ethic is if we can do it, we should do it, get out of our way. Um, and then in the second movie, Wu is confronted with how his technology is weaponized, literally weaponized as they sell off the animals as, as military things. And then in the third movie where he comes about to try to restore um, the world and, and repent of, of the evil that he has done. So yeah. uh, interesting story arc for him on that, but I actually really liked him as the sinister character of, of Jurassic World. It was like, yeah, all right, good. This this yeah. is he's this is a bad guy worthy of of this film. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Um, cool, cool, cool. All right, well, I have loved talking to you today. I really, really have. Um, so thank you so much for for coming on. Um, I'll give you a chance to um, you know, you already mentioned you have a, a paper you're writing now. Uh, you know, promote anything else. Uh, let us know how to find your work, uh, and then you can close this out in prayer. All right. Well, uh, if folks want to find out a little bit more about what I do, they can hop over to cornerstone-edsupply.com for our company, Cornerstone Educational Supply. So if you're you know, doing homeschool stuff or running a co-op or a teacher in a classroom and you're looking for science materials, we'd love to help you out. Um, our company exists to help particularly Christians. And our goal is to use some of the proceeds that we make as a company to help fund creation research. So our, awesome. our, our ethos, our goal here is to be able to train up another generation in how to do science well and how to love the Lord while they're doing it. That's amazing. Um, if you're looking for other things that I'm up to, um, I've got a forthcoming chapter in a four views book on Adam and Eve that will be coming out in August. Uh, where I take the young earth creation position uh, and am writing um, alongside um, three theistic evolutionists who take different approaches to uh, Genesis. Uh, one is Kenton Sparks. He takes an errantist view of the Bible. So he doesn't believe that the Bible is without error. He thinks it's very much with error. Um, and that Adam and Eve, we have to simply understand as some sort of mythological character. Um, William Lane Craig, the noted uh, apologist, is in this book as well, presenting his case that he thinks that Adam and Eve are what he calls mytho-historical. Um, hmm. And then we have a third person, another philosopher by the name of Andrew Loke, and he argues that Adam and Eve could be our ancestors if they are only our genealogical ancestors. That is, they're everybody's great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandparents amongst others that we had uh, out in the world. So they take a, mm. he takes a view that God allowed the human species to evolve through standard Darwinian situations, but then created a special Adam and Eve, made them in his image. But then their kids after the fall start intermarrying with the other human population out there. Mm. And so in that way, we end up being able to trace our ancestry down to Adam, but he's not the original human being. Uh, yeah. in, in, that, in that sense, in the biological sense. Um, so three different views within theistic evolution perspectives and one young earth creationists uh, to, to make the case. And, you know, I like those odds. Why not? Um, 
so well, I got that. I was gonna say, I'll, uh, sorry for interrupting, but that's uh, I love those books. I love them. I read, I don't know, a lot of them. Um, so if if if, if anyone's Ah, such a, just a good way to get multiple views and it's everyone has to write a little uh, essay and then you comment on the other person's essay. So it's just a great way, um, you know, in a short one book space to get multiple views and it's condensed down to you really feel like you're getting a deep dive. Um, so that's mm. really exciting to, to hear you um, that you're involved in that project. That's 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 great. Yeah, that. that'll that'll come out through Broadman and Holman, uh, B&H Press, uh, in August of uh, 2024. So that's called Perspectives on the Historical Adam and Eve. Um, I've also got some other things in the mix, but um, yeah, uh, you know, different stuff. Of course, if you head over to the Is Genesis History website, uh, you'll be able to see um, probably the whole film. As you mentioned, it's on um, I think Netflix or uh, or Amazon. Amazon. Mm-hmm. on Amazon. Uh, you can see lots of additional clips and teachings from not just me, but all the folks that were involved with that on the website uh, for Is Genesis History. Um, you can always uh, take a look on some of the uh, ministry websites. I've got a bunch of articles that I've written at AnswersInGenesis.org. Uh, I used to write a lot for Answers Magazine. And um, yeah, you know, there's there's uh, stuff out there, a few other videos. If you're looking for my take on dinosaurs and birds and feathers, like we just talked about, uh, there's a couple of videos from when I spoke out in uh, Chicago that are up there. So, you know, a few things uh, for your listeners if they're interested in following up with me. Awesome. Awesome, awesome, awesome. Okay. Um, well, thank you so much. Um, I will, I'll put uh, a link to your site in the bio so anyone's interested um, can go there uh, in the show description. Um, but yeah, close this out in prayer, man. Thank you so much for doing this again. Father, we are so grateful that we have the opportunity to search after you and that you have not hidden yourself, but that you have revealed to yourself uh, yourself to us in your word, and you reveal yourself to us through your creation. Lord, may you give us the eyes and the ears to see and hear clearly from you, that in so doing we may tell others of your glory and your majesty, that your name would echo forth in praise around the world. In Jesus' name, amen. There you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you so much for listening. Make sure to like and subscribe. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to share it with somebody you know. And with that being said, we'll catch you on the next one.